We're a week out from knowing what happens in the Georgia elections, and we're going to talk to a Georgia political scientist who's going to help us understand what's going on. Hang around, guys. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back. I can smell election day. It just smells like barbecue or something. Our guest today is Scott Buchanan. Scott is the depart is the uh, chairman of the Department of Government and Techno- Technology. Is that right? Government and sociology. Government and sociology. Wow. Okay, I messed up right off the bat. Scott's chairman of the of the Department of Government and Sociology at Georgia College and State University over in Milledgeville, but he's no stranger to this area. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Chuck. Good to be with you. Good to have you. You are a political scientist that I have turned to many, many times over the last uh, 22, 23 years as a reporter to sort of help me understand things. And I thought you were the perfect guy to do that right now. But one, I wanted to get I wanted to get a little bit of your background and tell people a little bit about why, you know, you may be showing up on a Columbus podcast, even though you were over in beautiful Milledgeville right now. Um, Tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up and all that. Well, I uh, grew up in Tava County, uh, northern part of the county near Manchester, Georgia, and I grew up on a farm there in, uh, in, in Tava County. Went to uh, went off to the big city of Athens, Georgia. Got an undergrad at University of Georgia, and then, as I jokingly say, I've been turning a little schizophrenic and uh, went got a master's from Auburn University and a PhD from the University of Oklahoma. All three degrees in political science, and have been uh, teaching in academia since 1999. So. You grew up in Talbot County. How did growing up in rural Georgia shape you as a political scientist? Wow, Chuck, nobody's ever asked me that question. So, uh, <laughs> I hope it's a good question then. Yeah, I think, I think in terms of how it shaped me is that politics was everywhere in rural Georgia. When I was growing up, I can, one of my very uh, earliest uh, political memories, at least in person, was going to see Herman Talmadge uh, speak at a uh, county water dedication in 1980. And uh, that was the first public event I can remember going to, but I grew up in a home in which uh, my parents, especially my father, talked a great deal about politics around the uh, supper table. And uh, I've always been fascinated by politics, fascinated by the political figures, and fascinated by elections and what drives people to vote. So I think, I think growing up in a, in, in, in a county like Talbot County, which is, which is a black belt county and historically a very democratic county, still is a democratic county. Um, I, I think it it gave me an appreciation for how politics is done in a good way, sometimes in a bad one. Uh, but uh, how politics how politics works, and it sort of uh, became so fascinated. Went and got three degrees in it, and here we are. You know, one of the things people 
particularly people that don't have rural roots. And I grew up in Barber County and was fascinated by politics because of Wallace and all of that back then. Um, one of the things that people who are not attuned to rural politics don't understand, they'll always, you'll see the pundits say, all politics is local. You don't know how local it is till you stand on the courthouse square in Talbotton. That's right. And that's right. And, and that kind of takes us to where we are today. I covered uh, Stacey Abrams in um, Buena Vista in Americas last week. I've covered Governor Kemp in um, Newnan, LaGrange. Um, I mean, he's hitting, I mean, he was at Sprayberry's Barbecue yesterday. That, I mean, I mean, Sprayberry's is a legendary barbecue joint in the state of Georgia, made famous by its barbecue one, but Louis Grizzard didn't hurt the plates either. Um, so when you see these politicians kind of going in, they're going back to Georgia roots in some ways in this campaign, aren't they? They really are. They really are. I mean, it's, it's retail politics 101 of going out, eating a little barbecue, shaking people's hands, looking them in the eye. Yeah, it really is, and that's historically how it was uh, how it was done. Certainly, how I remember it being done when I was growing up. The candidates are different. I mean, you know, I mean, certainly they're not all older white guys now. I mean, they're, it's very different in the diversity of it. But you know, one of the most fascinating things to me when you look at what's happening politically, and I'd like for you to speak to it, is Georgia has become, in many ways, the epicenter of the United States political world. How did that happen? People moving to Georgia. If you look at the state of Georgia, it is it's one of the fastest growing states in the union. Uh, it, however, that being said, the population growth is very uneven. It's not being distributed equally across the state. It's largely in the Atlanta area, but also Columbus, Augusta areas, uh, Savannah to some degree. So there are lots of people moving to the state, and the state is beginning to change a bit, politically speaking, in terms of its uh, loyalty. And th this is one of the things that I love talking to my students about because, I, you know, think about just a moment, the average college freshman you know, basically has come of age, the first president they might remember is George W. Bush, maybe. But more likely than not, they first think of Obama and then Trump and now Biden. And it is hard for many of my students to understand when I take them through it. Listen, Georgia was not always a Republican state. It used to be a Democratic state, one of the most, arguably one of the most loyally Democratic states of the Union. It produced Jimmy Carter. It produced Jimmy Carter. And they look at, some of the students look at me like, who, who is this crazy guy up here? Because they've grown up in an age when, uh, you know, earliest years, Democrats didn't do very well. How can that be? And, and so Georgia's gone from being overwhelmingly Democratic to very, very Republican. I won't say overwhelmingly Republican, but very Republican. Clear majority Republican. Clear majority Republican 
Uh, we can bicker on the date, but I would certainly say 2002 is that sort of. Oh, I think I think it happened the day that uh, Governor Barnes woke up and realized he had moving vans coming. Exactly, exactly. And then uh, now we've seen it uh, moderate just a little bit, in which Democrats you know, now have a fighting chance. But it's you know it, it's at the same time Georgia had was you know, if you were going back one year. There were predictions that Georgia was the next Virginia, that it was going to be the state that turns purple and blue, somewhat like Virginia. But, well, Virginia's not as blue as everybody thought after the governor's race up there last year. And I think maybe it was a little premature to say Georgia was is trending blue. I think it's certainly competitive certainly purple, but it's also a state where I would argue at present Republicans still have a bit of an advantage. And I think we're seeing some of that right now, and I want to get into that a little bit more. But first I want to say you've written a couple of books. One, probably one of the great book titles of all time, it was biography of Marvin Griffin, who was a governor in the late 50s here, and it was Some of the People Who Ate My Barbecue Didn't Vote for Me. What a great book title. But – there's some history in Marvin Griffin's retail politics that is can can be seen today, right? Yep. What yep. way? And and that, yeah. and, that, and that quote, I wish I could claim credit for being the you know developing and inventing that quote. I cannot claim credit for that. Um, nor can anyone ever pin that down on Marvin Griffin himself that he ever said that. One of his supporters said it, but did Governor Griffin ever say it? Debatable, but nonetheless, it made for a good book title. But if you look at someone like a Marvin Griffin, they he held the great rallies all over rural Georgia and invited and encouraged people from all counties to come that on free barbecue back in a day and age where that was, uh, you know, the entertainment factor of it was just as important as what you may have said in terms of substance. And to some degree, we, we don't maybe necessarily have those huge barbecues like in the days of Marvin Griffin, but nonetheless, we still have getting out among the public and politicking and, getting the votes and doing what you need to to convince people to put that check beside your name, whoever whoever you may be. And, you know, voting in our state has changed dramatically, even in the 20 years I've lived here. You know, I mean, if you don't vote in Georgia, it's your own fault, really, because you can go – I mean, I voted on Sunday afternoon – yeah, I voted two days ago, Sunday afternoon, at the City Services Center in Muskogee County. There were probably 20 people in there voting when I voted. I mean, think about that. I mean, in the Georgia you grew up with, for somebody to sit here and tell, told you, hey, I voted a week and a half before the election on a Sunday afternoon after church. I mean, that's unfathomable in the old days, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I think back on it, I, I was one of those – rare, at least at that period of time, one of those rare 18-year-olds who went to register to vote, to vote in the first presidential election that I could. 
And I remember the only way you registered to vote was to show up in person at the courthouse in Talbot in Georgia. That was how you went to register to vote. There was no other way. You couldn't mail in a registration. You didn't get registration when you re- when you got your driver's license. No, that, that was well before Motor Voter. And online, back at that period of time, what? What's the internet? Never heard of it. Uh, this is how much has changed. <laughs> you know, there's actually internet in Talbot County right now. <laughs> there is. It may not be that fast, but it's there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got to come through Manchester. Via via Atlanta, um, uh, I you know, mean, you know, to get to your question, I mean, it is it is mind boggling uh, the changes that have occurred. Where you know, it wasn't so long ago, you went and voted on election day. I mean, yeah, you could cast an absentee ballot. I've done that in my earliest years when I was a college student, mail in an absentee ballot, but. That was relatively uncommon. Most people went on election day itself. Yeah, I drove home from Troy to Eufaula to vote on election day. I mean, I just got in the car, went home 60 miles, and cast my ballot when I was in school. It just, you know, it's really the, the you know, and I know you've got the Democrats and Leader Abrams in an interview this morning I did with her is still screaming suppression, and, you know, and I understand it with what she's saying with the drop boxes and stuff like that, but do these voter numbers point out that, you know, how do you argue suppression when you're turning record numbers to the polls? I don't know how you do argue that because if you look at what's going on so far, not only in Georgia but across the nation, there is a record number of early votes being cast already and and I would just hasten to add this is in a midterm election cycle when I was going through graduate school the common you know truism was oh no more than a third of the electorate is going to show up for the midterm just doesn't happen won't happen and we're, now we're at looking, 25% right now a week out we're, we're at 20 as of yesterday, statewide in Georgia, we're at twenty three percent turnout, and and I, I think it's a given we're going to be past twenty five percent, maybe close to thirty by Friday when early voting stops. Uh, and that is it, is mind boggling. We're you know we're talking you know quarter of the electorate that will have voted before election day, which brings me to a question I want to ask you and. I asked it to Governor Kemp yesterday in Newton, and I asked it to Leader Abrams on a Zoom interview this morning. With more than 1.5 million Georgians already have voted, 20, nearly 25%, and that number's going to go up over the next few days. Is what's going to happen next Tuesday on Election Day, has it already happened? Is is the result in the machines, and we just don't know it yet. I mean, is everything else just going to build on what has already happened? I, I don't know if everything – I don't know if the results are in the machine yet. Um, I think if we were able to get into the and see who's voting, we might get some idea of a trend that is emerging. But, you know, there, there's – it's kind of like the old – 
adage, they played the ball game for a reason. Well, we've got to wait for election day uh, to see what ultimately occurs. However, so I you're mean, saying they got to play the rest of the third and the fourth they quarter? Got, they they got to play. Exactly. Exactly. If we're going to use that analogy, I guess maybe we're, I don't know, maybe midway through the third quarter. And you got the rest of the third quarter, and then you got the fourth quarter uh, to, to, to get through. Well, if you listen to the, if you take that analogy, and then we'll say midway through the third quarter, um, at least in the governor's race, every poll is starting to trend with Kemp five, six points ahead. Uh, next star, the Hill Emerson College will have a poll coming out later this week. They'll be one of the last ones for the election day. But if you're looking at the polls, five, six percent lead for Kemp. Do you believe those numbers? I do in terms of the poll. And, and I've seen about five different polls over the last two weeks are all somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven. I think there's even one poll out there at eight. I think that's probably, you know, I don't think we're going to see that kind of edge for Kemp. But the general trend is there for Kemp keeping in mind that he only won by two percentage points in 2018. Um, Anything beyond that, I think he's going to say, hey, this is a clear mandate. Uh, But to answer your question, I think the trend is certainly there in favor of Kemp. One of the things about Kemp that's interesting to me, and he used the line again yesterday, he's used it at every stop I've heard him at. I'm running – to keep Stacey Abrams from being your governor, and I'm running to keep Stacey Abrams from being your next president. He says that time and again. If the polling is right, and in a week he is reelected governor of Georgia, you will have a Republican governor who has beaten a a leading national Democrat twice and turn back a Donald Trump-backed primary challenge by 50 points. There aren't many other Republicans in the nation that have that resume, right? Not really. Not really. Does that make him a na- somebody that gets into the becomes part of the national discussion, particularly for president? I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to see that Kemp would become touted as, as a president, as for, well, to use the old term, presidential timber. Um, I think Ron DeSantis has probably kind of uh, beat Kemp out of the starting block on, on, on trying to run for president and challenge, even though Donald Trump's not yet announced he's going to run for re-election, but to try and challenge Trump should he decide to run. Uh, I, I don't know. I, could I see Kemp maybe getting enough support and running for the Senate at some point? Yeah, I can see that. But President, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't know. But, I mean, to your point, yeah, it puts Brian Kemp in, an, in a different sort of place than many Republicans who are kowtowing to Trump and his base. Brian Kemp has won a very traditional conservative Republican campaign in which he openly defied a sitting president, Donald Trump, and 
got away with it. I would argue he didn't get away with it. It enhanced his brand. You know, it's interesting, a Democratic operative yesterday, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but a Democratic operative described Kemp this way to me, and I started laughing. I couldn't figure out if it was a compliment or a backhanded compliment, but he described Kemp as a poor man's George W. Bush. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking to interesting people. right? I I sat there and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, maybe they're talking about the folksyism, the, you know, yeah. the, 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 one of the things, and I've covered Governor Kemp a lot over the last six, six and a half years. Governor Kemp in, is one of the best politicians I've ever seen. He stays on message. He doesn't deviate from message. I've tried to bait him with questions about Trump two years ago. Um, He's going to go back to what the message is, and he doesn't get away from it. Would you agree with that? Yes, very much so. How hard is it for a politician to stay on message? Uh, well, for some of them, quite difficult uh, to not become involved in the responding to attacks or responding to this or you know, getting off on tangents, but to stay on task here. In many ways, people like Brian Kemp are the are the campaign managers because you can give them the message. You need to say this. These are the important things. Stay it. Stay on point. Stay on message. Kind of like to use, and I use this in class this morning to use the old uh, saying from James Carville: "It's the economy, stupid. Uh, just stay on point. Stay on task." Yeah. That's not easy for everybody to do. No, it's not at all. And, you know, I want to get to other races. One point, I interviewed, one-on-one interview with Governor Kemp back in early spring. Primary challenge was taking shape. It was clear that he was doing well, but the blowout that resulted hadn't really formed at that point. And we started talking about his days as a home builder up in Athens. And he – talked about he had had many days. He and Marty sat at the kitchen table, and the wolves were at the door. And that way he said that kind of struck me. I was like, okay. And he finished the thing, and, you know, I said, Do you, I said, in this primary, you feel like the wolves are chasing you again? He looked at me, and he was steely-eyed, and he goes, I'm chasing the wolves. And I was like, Man, that's a guy who knows he's about to do well. You know how you can just look at one moment when you're talking to people like that and go, holy cow. I mean, that that's the moment right now that stands out in this election for me all the way back. I'm chasing the wolves. I mean, told you his mindset. Yep. Let's go to, to Stacey Abrams. Um, she came very, very close to being governor, 55,000 votes four years ago. She went off, kind of stayed on message, and came back a year or so and rekindled the campaign. She clearly has been a major driving factor in registering and getting voters out. I've heard people say that the system she put in place probably led to the Ossoff-Warnock Senate wins in 2021 runoffs. Describe Stacey, I mean, describe the politician you see when you see Stacey Abrams. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting with Abrams. Um, she she clearly is a very good politician. She is interested, obviously, in being governor, but she also has this national interest. In, and I will say, too, it's not one-sided. The Democratic Party nationally has interest in her candidacy and how she does. If you're Abrams, and I think if you look at her campaign in 2018, she came along, obviously we had an open seat for governor with uh, Governor Dale being term limited out. Anytime you got an open seat election, those are always the most competitive. And she and Abrams comes along at a period of time, 2018, referendum on Trump, and to some degree, there were certainly your 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 solid Democratic voters were going to vote Democratic, but you had a number of independents who either leaned Democratic or even some that leaned Republican who didn't like Trump and his style, and Trump had endorsed Kemp, and so to some degree, Abrams benefited by that. And but if you look also, Stacey Abrams' problem, and you can just look at a map of Georgia on this from 2018. Her problem was that she was contained to the urban areas, and I say that with the you know she won 48 percent of the vote, roughly speaking. But whatever final numbers were, she was contained to urban Georgia, and then those remaining Black Belt counties like Ottawa. And she wasn't able to make the breakthrough to some of the suburban counties that are slightly Republican, or she certainly wasn't doing very well in those rural counties that are majority white. Those so, are the counties that helped to make Ossoff and Warnock two week two years later. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and. Then, of course, by the time you get to 20, they're, they're riding that perfect storm, if you will, of voters who, many of them who were Republicans, but more moderate Republicans who just were not going to cast a vote for Donald Trump. Just weren't, they were not going to do it. They were never Trumpers. And they, you know, voted in protest or didn't vote at all for the Senate race. And it helps Ossoff and Warnock not to take away from their campaigns at all. But you see the similar pattern that you saw for Abrams in 2018. So if you fast forward to 22, the challenge for the Abrams campaign is how do you break in to those rural red counties in Georgia and some of these outlying suburban counties? And the polling data doesn't seem to indicate that they've broken through. I don't, I don't see any real evidence that they've broken through. She had an enthusiastic 350-person crowd um, at the train depot in America's last week. And, you know, it was a it was a pretty diverse crowd, really diverse crowd, young, old, black, white, a little, little bit of everything there. Um, you know, Sumter's one of those counties she needs to do well in, yeah. and, you know, because that's a rural county that clearly – has you know has some clout but you know it's just i i think you're i think you're on point when you talk about that she's having some trouble she's spending time now she's in she's in rural georgia i mean she stopped in buena vista 
I mean, I mean, which in and of itself, to get about, you know, take this a little more local for just a moment. Um, I can remember the first time that Marion County started becoming a relatively reliable Republican county. I mean, that gives you some sense of the change in rural Georgia in some of these counties. Uh, as you know, some of that the Marion County overflowed from Columbus, but uh, you know, the, as you look at that, is another indicator of how Georgia's has evolved and has changed. And you know, go back to you know, once upon a time to take your listeners back way back in time, the Republican Donut being the suburban counties surrounding Atlanta, and the Democrats had inner city Atlanta. They had outside the donut. They had Cobb. They had Gwinnett. How do you break out of that donut? Well, the donut is sort of changed over into something else where you've got the urban areas, but then rural Georgia becoming increasingly more Republican and conservative. Well, no matter what you or I say, we'll know in a week who's won that there one. Um, Okay, you've been watching. I hope we do, Chuck. I hope we don't have any, uh, you know, dragging on of, uh, you know, counting ballots and et cetera, et cetera. This podcast is ending because we're not going to talk like that at any point. (laughs) We do not. We do not. You are talking to a TV guy with deadlines. We're not doing that. No, brother. Please stop. I want to go to the U.S. Senate race featuring Senator Raphael Warnock, who seems like he has been campaigning nonstop for two and a half years, and Herschel Walker. Who, and I know you're a good Georgia Bulldog. You've probably had a Herschel poster on your wall at some point in your life. Um, have you ever seen a political race like this one? I'm hard-pressed to see one. I mean, you talk about negativity out of this, out of this race. And I, I, I've talked to a number of people, Democrats and Republicans alike, who are just like, well, what, what are you going to do? I mean, what are you, you going to do, like, in terms of what are you going to do? I mean, most of the ads tend to be negative. And I've had people ask me over the years, why do these campaigns run negative ads? And then my response is because they work. People tend to focus, you know, listen to the negative and, you know, they'll, they'll vote one way or the other. It's in, in some sense, you're trying to energize your base. In that walker Warnock race, you're talking about you know, some very, very thin margins between the two of them. Um, Latest poll I saw had, uh, well, let me rephrase that. The latest polls I've seen, if you average those, they have Walker up about three points. The ones I've been looking at are flipping between Warnock up one, Walker up one. Yeah. But no, so, but, but nobody at 50 because the the, the, the Libertarians probably going to mess up the gumbo in that one. Isn't it? I, uh, my, my bold prediction here, which may, be, may not be so bold, is that the Libertarian is going to slap off enough votes that it gets thrown into a runoff and do something. Libertarian gets 5%. What happens? Um, you wind up with you. You're in a runoff, which Georgia is unique in the nation to have a general election runoff. Um, I think it gets thrown into it, will get thrown into the runoff, and I, it remains to be seen at that point. I think. I think in terms of if we get into that runoff territory, 
it's going to be, it's going to wind up who's the most excited is the Republicans because they had a good night next week and they're enthused, they're energized, they shit back up for that runoff, or do they not do as well as they were hoping and kind of throw their hands up somewhat like, somewhat like 2020 and the, or actually early 21, in the general election runoff when Ossoff and Warnock won? No, I would say two years ago, I said, what happens if you have two runoffs in the U.S. Senate races and control of the United States Senate is, is, is on the line? And everybody said, man, that'll never happen. I was like, uh, we could actually have control of the U.S. Senate on the line in a Walker-Warnock runoff. Is that, I mean, that, I mean, they're going to need Brink's trucks to get the money into Georgia for out of D.C. and New York, right? That's exactly what will happen. We will really become the center of the political universe. California. There will be a lot of California money that will roll in here, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there will be. Um, and, and, and we will become, to some degree, we were like this in, in late 20, early 21, because a lot of times, I even forget this myself. That Senate runoff was really in early 21. Uh, people had hardly had time to get over their New Year's Eve hangovers uh, by the time we were voting in early 21 for the, for the Senate. Um, but, yes, to answer your question, we will have money coming into this state like nobody's business. Um, I, I've We'll get international attention. In fact, I've... Hey, you go ahead. Go ahead and finish. I'll tell you something. I was, say, I was even interviewed by a Danish media outlet, as in Denmark, uh, a week or so ago about the the uh, Warnock Walker race. And I'm like, really, Denmark? You're, you're paying attention to Denmark? Well, they I, are. I got one better. So three weeks ago, I was covering a camp event in um in Butler. He was at Barrow Automotive, and you and I both know that is not Barrow Automotive. It's a gun store. It's one exactly. of the biggest, largest gun stores in the whole state. And I looked over, and there was this guy with a boom mic, and he had this sort of petite woman behind him. And I was like, I looked at one of the camp guys and said, what crew are they with? French Public TV found Butler, Georgia. Think about that for a second. I mean, I know people in Georgia that can't find Butler, Georgia. Oh, boy. Miracles of GPS. That's all I got to say. But this question's coming in a French accent to the governor in the middle of the gun store parking lot. And, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, you want to write about this? You want to tell people about this? But it sounds like you're making it up. You know, one more question on the Senate race. Um, You obviously are a proud bulldog. Has this race tarnished the legend of Herschel Walker in the state? You know, I, I don't I don't know, Chuck. I think what it boils down to in the end is that those and, and I'm thinking especially longtime Georgia residents, and, and I say that in the context of you know, we've had billions of people move into this state since that nineteen eighty championship season millions who 
did not have that history that that many, including myself, uh, to to that those Georgia roots. I think among that, if I can use this phrase, that old Georgia crowd, I don't know that it's really tarnished it that much. Among nearer Georgians, maybe so, but I, you know, I was I was thinking about this with with the the weekend before. Vince Dooley passed away. Walker's campaign was running on one of the football games I was watching. They were running an ad with Vince Dooley. They ran after Coach Dooley's death. And I didn't see it during the Georgia-Florida game, so I was wondering, had they pulled it or not? Apparently, but, Barbara sent an email out that said he would want, her to, want him to keep running them. So they ran them. I think they started pulling them about two or three days ago. Um, you know, I, I think that ad in and of itself is, is somewhat symbolic for those who have those very deep roots and we kind of get back into rural Georgia again. I think Vince Dooley endorsing Herschel Walker like that, I think is enormous. How that plays among independent voters in the Atlanta area, especially those who have moved from other parts of the country. I'm not so sure. But I think... If You're you saying look, down in Waycross, that may make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And and I think if you look at this, uh, what what's the Walker campaign doing? And this had its drama. Uh, the campaign staff has had its drama, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go there. But I think if you look at what... Walker's doing what Kemp's doing, what Republicans nationwide are doing. They and I mentioned Virginia a little bit ago. They're looking back to the Virginia governor's race last year, where Glenn Yonkin won in a state that supposedly was overwhelmingly Democratic. Yonkin had no chance. He seized upon issues. He stayed on point. And if you look in rural Virginia. The, a, fr- a colleague of mine did an analysis on this. If you look at rural Virginia, the vote in rural Virginia for the governor's race in 2021 was 80% of the presidential turnout the year before. 80%. I suspect we'll have that here. You don't get that, and I think that's what Republicans nationwide are doing, and specifically, you know, Walker's doing, trying to mobilize rural Georgia. In, incredible numbers to counteract the the uh, urban vote that's going to be overwhelmingly Democratic. Scott, we're getting toward the end of this, but I don't want to go without talking about the 2nd Congressional District. It's a, you know, the 2nd has morphed over the year, many, many years. It now is essentially a 116,000 of Columbus voters are in the 2nd now. Runs all the way down the Alabama line to Bainbridge to the Florida line back over to Thomasville back up has Albany Albany in the middle then it goes up sort of this side of 75 and picks up West Macon um and then comes back in around is Talbot County in the second or the third so you're the you're the northern edge of the Talbot's the northern northern edge of the third Sanford Bishop has survived in that fertile soil for 30 years. 
What does that tell you about Congressman Bishop as a politician? Tells me he's a very good politician. Uh, that, and he he has survived some challenges in his uh, political career. Most, uh, uh, I'm thinking most notably back. To, I guess it was 2000. I'd have to look at the date, 2014, where he was losing, going the midnight hour before that was 2010 it was mike it was Coward. 2010, okay. it was 2010. Okay. i ap actually called the race for cowan that's um, right and, that's right and, and if my memory is correct mistakenly called the race and i think if i remember it correctly correct me if i'm wrong i think south columbus was what threw him over the top i was at his headquarters that night and i'll never forget that night it was an interesting political night to be involved in it. But, you know, the challenge came from the same place Chris West comes from. That challenge came out of Thomasville. Chris West is out of Thomasville. You know, I've come to the conclusion Thomasville just does not like Sanford Bishop. I mean, <laughs> but it, and it's coming out of the southern end of the district. But I had a Republican, a hardcore Republican, the other day, tell me he was voting for Bishop. And I was like, whoa, that sort of surprises me. He said, Columbus doesn't need to lose the seat. And I thought, okay, that's a, interesting. That's a, that, and you know, but then I know farmers have gravitated to West. I mean, you know, he's peeling away some of that South. You go, you drive from here down to Albany or you here to Americas or you drive over to Fort Valley and you go through the peach fields and the solar farms. Fields that used to have bishop signs in them now have farmers for West. So he's clearly appealed to that. Is he doing that in large part because people are now falling back to their red and blue teams? Yes, yes. Uh, one of the things about U.S. House district races, we used to say they were all local. And they they were, to some degree, protected from national trends. That's long gone. And for many voters, they're looking now, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? And if you look in the 2nd Congressional District, many rural white voters have become so overwhelmingly Republican that they're looking are the D. They're they're linking together. Okay, my vote, my congressman can be a key part of governing the nation. And they're beginning to make those those sort of linkages. I have been doing, it's not new, but in our hyper-partisan atmosphere, it's become accentuated this this idea of linking your vote for Congress with the national parties. Whereas but, you could go back even to, to Bishop's earliest race. It was, it was considered to be local. I remember Sanford Bishop was running as, as you would in that district. We're running on, you know, Hey, you know, I'll protect the peanut farmers. He was a blue dog Democrat. Exactly. Exactly. I'll say this too. About Define Bishop. blue dog Democrat for somebody that's listening to this and thinks I just called Sanford a dog. Well, the, the, the old the older term to take you back, and I don't want to take this over time. A yellow dog Democrat was someone who would just vote for a Democrat, no matter who it was, even if they were a yellow dog. 
the apocryphal story, some farmer in Texas said, son, I'd vote for a Democrat if it was a yellow dog. And you get that yellow dog Democrat. Blue dog Democrat is a takeoff of that someone who is a fiscal conservative, like a Sanford Bishop. I'll take that step further with Sanford Bishop. I was at an event in Macon back during the summer, uh, Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and several of the congressmen were there. And Bishop got up and defies any sort of national media portrayals of who the Democrats are. He gets up, he says the blessing before we eat lunch, and he ends the blessing, we pray these things in Christ's name. At a Georgia Chamber of Commerce event, and we're not talking about a Republican doing it, we're talking about a Democrat. And that was a statewide event, too, wasn't it? It was a statewide event. You know, it, it, and it, it gives you some sense of what a good politician. I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't want to. I don't want that to sound wrong. But it gives you a sense of how uh, Bishop is a very good politician. Well, you see Sanford any or Congressman Bishop anywhere, and he's like, "How are you doing, Congressman?" Or "How are you doing?" And he he'll go, "Blessed and highly favored." I mean, he in yeah. in. You know, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens, what happens on Tuesday night in that race. Stacey Abrams told me flat out today that that race is critical to her hopes to be the next governor. She needs she needs Bishop to run up some points because that means she'll run up some points in those areas. Yeah, and and I will say this. I'll take that a step further about the second district, because the 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 very small handful of polls I've seen show Bishop up three to five points. Um, but I will say this: if we see on election night Chris West starting to build up some significant numbers against Bishop, and if he were to win. I think therein lies your Republican tsunami. I'm not going to say wave, a tsunami if they can flip the second district. That will have a wave that goes past Macon, past Columbus, past exactly. the Georgia line, and could go all over the country, right? Exactly. exactly. If, I mean, you will have national folks really zeroing in if it looks like West has a chance as those votes start coming in. I mean, that race, but you know, and I've gotten to know Chris a little bit in this campaign, sharp, sharp guy. I call him a kid. He's 38 years old, but sharp guy. And, you know, grassroots politician reminds you of some of the ones from around here, but he beat, he had 260 or $70,000 in the primary and he beat back a two point eight million dollar financed effort by Tom Cotton, Nikki Haley, and the Republican elite, which told me something about the Republicans in the second congressional district. They still have an independent streak. And you saw it because they didn't go with DC's hand picked Fox News candidate. Is that you think that's right? That's an accurate assessment. Well, you know, and hey He's pulled one up, said, you know, he's he's kind of like those Tennessee Vols. Don't count him out till it's over. Uh, um, 
and it'll be interesting to see what happens, and we'll, a lot of us will be watching that very closely. Well, we're at the point in the podcast, and I didn't tell you I was going to do this to you, but I'm going to do it. I've done it to everybody. I'm going to do it to you. Uh, uh, here, here comes that Alabama curveball. No, I've been asking you questions. You get a chance to ask me one. You need to say, okay, I call it turn the tables, but – is there anything, you know, we've been talking, you and I have a great relationship when it comes to politics. Unfortunately, I only tell you when it's election season. I feel bad about that. I need to buy you barbecue somewhere. But um, anything you want to ask me? How did you, yeah, I do. How did you transition from uh, print media to the broadcast media? You know, I was very fortunate. My striking good looks really helped me to pull it off. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> but beyond that. Get the beeper. Hell if I know. I don't know how I've done it yet. I have no clue how I've done it. I've just come in and continued to be a journalist. I'm a journalist. I will be a journalist till the day they bury me. I'm a question asker. I like to think I try to have some intellectual curiosity and it's worked over here very well to just be a journalist. Fortunately, we have some of the most forgiving viewers in the world here in WRBL and our our viewing area, which goes into Talbot County. Um, they look past me stumbling on words sometimes because they realize I'm trying to bring them the latest news, the most accurate news, the most in context. And, you know, and I'm just I covering this election – Particularly, and, and this election is an extension of 2020, which was an extension of 18. So they've kind of rolled into each other. As a political reporter, I mean, good gosh, where, where else could you be and be in the thick of it than to be in, in the great state of Georgia right now? And I get to peek over the line and see what crazy stuff they're doing in Alabama so I got a I got a I got a I got a theater seat on both sides but you know I'm you know I think the transition has worked because at the end of the day not really a TV guy I try to be but I'm a reporter I'm a journalist I'm somebody who wants to get the information and I want to serve you know for years it was readers now it still is readers to some degree with the online but it's also the people who tune in and watch us. We, you know, I'm lucky, man. I work with Phil Scoggins, Teresa, Teresa Whitaker. I work with Bob Jetswell. We've got a, just a whole host of talented, talented young people that are coming through here and going to bigger and better things. Um, and they get to sort of see me. And, you know, I kind of joke with everybody, and you know all the personalities involved in this. Phil and Teresa are mom and dad. There's no question with all these young reporters coming in. Jeswald and I are just the crazy uncles. We're, the, we're just, you know, some days Bob's crazier than I am, and some days I'm crazier than Bob. But, you know, but we get to do this, and, you know, and I just can't wait till next Tuesday. I mean, I'm like a kid in a candy store right now. Get me to Tuesday and show me what it's going to be. Does that make any sense with that answer? It does. Been done you know, you're you're the same one. I mean, you and I both, I mean, I, I would label both of us political junkies. I mean, you have the degrees that <laughs> that support your habit. I've just, you know, you have the you have the 
you have degrees from great institutions. But, you know, it's at the end of the day, I mean, this is a great time to be a political junkie because we're seeing th- things that I thought I knew about politics six, eight, ten years ago. Man, those norms are gone, smashed and shattered. Long gone, long gone. Yeah, I mean, there were days that, you know, I mean, you and I can go back to Gary, to Gary Hart, and you know, and I mean, he was on a boat and married, and it ended his career. It would have it would have been a five point bump in the polls today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nothing, nothing. Nothing is as it was, and nothing's going to be as it is. That's kind of the philosophy. Yep. Does that make any sense? Okay. Well, Lewis has been our director today, and he has nailed it through. But I want to thank Scott Buchanan for – I'm pronouncing you right. I mean, I got my Talbot County English right. It's not Buchanan. Yeah. It's Buchanan. 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 <laughs> and from a long line of Talbot County Buchanans, I would imagine. Um Scott, thanks. I think we all are going to sit back now and see what happens next Tuesday. But thanks for giving us context. I really, really appreciate you being here. Scott is at Georgia College and State University where he's department chair for government and sociology. Got it right the last time. Um, And, uh, you know, we miss him here at CSU. But but with Zoom and stuff, we can still do what we used to do years ago. So, Scott, thanks for joining us, man. Thank you. It's been fun. You've been listening to another episode of the Chuck Williams Show. We will, we will likely not be back next week for Election Day, but we'll figure something out. But anything that we say next Tuesday is going to be wrong by Tuesday night, so it, it won't matter. Okay, well, come on back again, guys. Thanks. The Chuck Williams Show airs on Tuesday nights from 7 to 8 on WRBL.com. It's also available on your favorite podcast format, iHeart, Spotify, and Apple. Social media, yeah, we're there too. You can get me on Twitter at Chuck Williams, Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL, Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999.